Hello, everyone. I want to welcome you to another episode of Scoliosis Dialogues, which is a podcast produced by the Scoliosis Research Society. This podcast is going to be focused on the winner of the Thomas E. White Cloud Award, which is given to surgeons who have produced research highlighting clinical excellence. This award is named after Dr. White Cloud, who was actually one of the surgeons who started the IMAS meeting. And the winners of this award are actually chosen by the IMAS committee, as well as the attendees after they've heard all of the talks. So trust me, you are in for a great discussion about one of the best papers that were presented at this year's past program. Today, I am super excited to interview Dr. Peter Newton for his award-winning study titled The Harm Study Group Retrospective Comparison Study on Anterior Vertebral Body Tethering versus Posterior Spinal Fusion for Primary Thoracic Curves. Although I think after this talk, uh, we might want to rephrase the title to Curb Your Enthusiasm. Thank you again, Dr. Newton. And for those who missed the live presentation, I'm going to do my best to summarize the study, and then we're going to get into hearing uh, Dr. Newton's thoughts on the study. Uh, but thank you again, Dr. Newton, for, uh, for being here today. It's my pleasure, Jason. As we all know, uh, vertebral body tethering is the newest fad in the treatment of scoliosis. But there are still many skeptics out there who feel that, um, especially for thoracic curves, a good old fusion is the gold standard, and it's the gold standard for a reason. Uh, so while many people would leave, I guess, their feelings more at the anecdotal stage, uh, in typical Dr. Newton fashion, you and your colleagues kind of went on to actually try to answer this question uh, in the HARM study group. Um, and you did this by taking 122 patients who received a vertebral body tether, uh, and then you compared that and matched that group of patients to another 122 patients who had a fusion for their thoracic curves. So Dr. Newman, after following these patients for two years, what would you say were the main kind of take-home conclusions from it when you compared these patients who had a tether compared to those who had a good fusion for their thoracic curves? Well, it's uh, really, that's the crux uh, of the question, isn't it? And, and the meat of what we're after. If you just look at the average curve sizes at greater than two-year follow-up, the tether patients had about a 29-degree residual curve, and the posterior spinal fusion patients had an 18-degree residual curve. So if you just look simply at Cobb angle, you can see that they're not quite as straight with a tether. But really, I think there's more to the story than just looking at the averages of Cobb angle. Of course, uh, scoliosis outcomes are not entirely defined by a Cobb angle. If we just look at how well patients did with regards to getting, having finishing with a curve under 35 degrees, which is somewhat of an arbitrary uh, threshold to be quite frank, but many people would think that if you haven't gotten it less than 30, 25, 35 degrees, then maybe you haven't done enough. For the tethers, 74% of the population was able to get to a curve less than 35 degrees, but that's versus 99% of the posterior spinal fusion patients. No matter how you look at the deformity correction, I think we do a better job with posterior spinal fusion. I don't think that should be a surprise to anybody, to be honest with you. Uh, when we leave the operating room after posterior spinal fusion, we pretty much have the correction that's gonna be there two and five years later. However, with a tether, particularly in this cohort where we were 
largely operating on patients who had growth remaining. 73% of the patients were risk or zero. Uh, we don't really know where this is going to end. We're, we're dependent on growth modulation and time to finish or whatever deformity correction we're hoping for. And in some cases we get it, and in other cases we don't. The other, I think, really important difference between the two populations was the revision surgery rate. 16.3% uh, revisions in the tether group versus 2.5% for the fusion group. So uh, I think those are probably the uh, important big take-homes with regards to outcome. You know, and I think, uh, especially that revision rate finding, uh, you know, you had published kind of a single center evaluation uh, of the tether. And I think there were some critics that said, oh, well, maybe Peter Newman wasn't doing it right. And that's why he had, you know, so, mother, uh, so many revisions. But this was a harm study group coming together and multiple surgeons submitting their, uh, their data showing that really, yeah, that revision rate uh, for the tether is quite a bit higher than for a primary fusion. So I think that was a uh, kind of as a young surgeon, that that really kind of popped out to me saying that, look, the people who've been doing this the longest are still having uh, these episodes of revisions. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, uh, obviously, earlier in any new technology, I think you can expect higher revisions. Hopefully, we learn from our mistakes and we can make adjustments as we go forward. And I would hope that's still true for this procedure as well. But the other thing that's true is that the longer you follow your patients, the more that revision rate goes up. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, you get to count uh, just more and more cases as time goes, not less and less. Yeah. So the longer the follow-up, the higher the rate's going to be. Uh, and in this series, we, we did have minimum two-year follow-up and some were out a little bit further, but uh, we're still only at an average of two and a half years post-op for this series. And I think that's still, unfortunately, that revision rate is likely to increase. Uh, as you get longer and longer follow-up. Sure. So the next thing, the next question I want to ask you is that this study was purely focused on thoracic curves. And I think we've all received videos from our patients who after a primary thoracic fusion, they're doing backflips and somersaults and all these things, which would indicate really they have great motion uh, uh, like around their fusion. Um, do you think these results, uh, whether it be residual curve or whether it be revision rate, might be different if you all only focus on lumbar curves that have been tethered or fused? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I would agree with you that, that lumbar motion is where we're really interested in, is the region of the spine that we're most interested in preserving. I mean, uh, lumbar is certainly more important than thoracic from a motion standpoint for a patient. It also means that, you know, that there's much greater demand on the, the tether and the flexible cord that's present if you put more motion demand on it. So I've, I've been a little bit nervous about the failure rate, uh, knowing we have such a, a problematic uh, failure rate, even in the thoracic spine, that that will be even more so uh, in the lumbar curves. And, and Feroz Mianji did present some of the harm study groups uh, outcomes on thoracolumbar tethers uh, versus fusion. And uh, interestingly, they uh, were. Ev I think they were more comparable than than our thoracic cases. Mm -hmm. So th this experience is smaller, and the follow up is also still a bit limited. But uh, I think the outcomes for tethers, in some hands, have been uh, pretty promising, and others uh, not so much. So that story, to me, still remains to be written. Uh, sure. We'll see how those turn out. 
And you made an interesting statement at the very end of your presentation where you said, you know, based on these findings, we're going to have to have a frank conversation with our patients that are asking, well, what, what should I do, Dr. Newton? Uh, should I get a tether or should I get a fusion? And you kind of proposed a statement that you may have to present the options that either we can make sure your spine gets as straight as possible, or we can make sure that you maintain flexibility, but we can't necessarily guarantee we're going to be able to get your curve as straight as possible. Uh, is that the discussion you're having with your patients? And if you do, what has been your experience in terms of what they decided to choose? Yeah, that's that's similar to, I mean, that really is the gist of it. I mean, you you either decide your your you highly value motion, uh, understanding that the loss of motion associated with the spinal fusion, as you just pointed out, is is measurable and real, but from a functional standpoint, relatively modest. Or do you value the idea that you can have much more likely to have a, a single operation in which the outcome will be known immediately after the surgery for the most part from the standpoint of correction? So uh, I guess I would say patients value each of those things differently. Some people are very scared of having a second operation. Other people are very scared about having a spinal fusion uh, and feel that that's a, an irreversible operation that you know they can never... Uh, undo, which is true. I think everybody, you know, has a different perspective on uh, how they perceive their their body and what it does and how they want it to perform afterwards, uh, both in how it looks and how it moves. And uh, I think we need to help patients understand the differences in how these two approaches may perform for them uh, as an individual. Uh, and I must say, I've got patients who uh, will choose tether over fusion uh, and vice versa. Uh, I must say my my success in in helping patients truly understand what I believe are the pros and cons of both these operations is far easier if they come and have never been on the internet. <laughs> but um, uh, if they come having been convinced that fusion, you know, will end their their normal functional life. Uh, and that they have to have a tether, then uh, it's very difficult to be able to sort of explain why I think that might not always be the case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the internet can be dangerous. I've had quite a bit of uh, parents of seven-year-olds coming in asking for tethers, and, uh, and I've uh, kind of had to try to explain to them that it's not for everybody. Um, so what do you say to the young spine deformity surgeon who is, who is hearing this podcast, who has heard your talk, you know, there may be uh, one or two years out into practice. Do you say, go ahead and sink your teeth in tethering? Or do you say, maybe hold fast until we try to figure out some more things? Well, you know, I guess I would say for most new technologies, uh, you just need to decide as an individual, does it make sense uh, to you? Do you believe in the philosophy? Do you want to be on the front end of something like this, understanding that your patients are likely to have a higher revision rate and how well can you handle that or manage that in your early career and practice? Uh, you know, I, it's, it's, uh, I think it's a dilemma that we all face, uh, whether early in our career or late in our career, to be quite honest with you. Uh, and there's certainly, I've certainly been involved in, in a number of uh, relatively new technologies through my career, but there's been a lot that I have also not jumped on very quickly uh, and been a little bit more slow to adopt. So. I don't know. I think you just have to kind of see what feels right for you. But 
you know, there's a, I think there's a tendency to just feel like if you're not doing it, you're, you're out of touch and you're left behind. And, uh, and this is going to be a, you know, horrible thing. Someone's going to steal all the business, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I would really strongly uh, encourage folks to, to just take a much bigger view of, of life and medicine than, than worrying about that. Uh, I mean, you're, this is a career that we undertake for, for the long haul, uh, to do the very best thing we can for our patients. And, uh, and so I would really just have people think about how they would want to take care of their own kids. And if they think it, they're ready and to do it for their own kids, then maybe uh, they're ready to do it for, for their patients. Uh, all, all new technology has some risk to it and uh, the lack of follow-up uh, here is still a problem. I mean, I, I think we, you know, it's going to be a while to know how all these tethers do over the, over the 10 year time course. And this is still a, a, the vast minority of my practice. I, I have some folks who I think are ideal candidates that I will offer this to. And probably a third of the patients who have, are hearing about this for the first time by me will, will say that that sounds like a good idea and the rest still go for a more traditional approach. So I don't know, look, look inside yourselves and try to figure out where you are and where you wanna be on this kind of advancing curve of technology, knowing that it will probably settle down to a more appropriate indication over time. Sure, that is wonderful advice. And Dr. Newman, uh, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us for this podcast. Again, for those who didn't hear me in the beginning, Dr. Newman and his group at the Harm Study Group uh, they won an award. They won the White Cloud Award uh, for Excellence in a Clinical Research for their study comparing anterospinal uh, vertebral tethers to posterospinal fusions uh, for the treatment of thoracic curves. And uh, this has been so informative, and we look forward to seeing uh, all the innovation that's going to come in the future from you and your group. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jason. It's always a pleasure, and always enjoy the, the SRS audience. Take care, all. Emma is a volleyball player who was diagnosed with idiopathic scoliosis at the age of 12. After two years of bracing and continued curve progression, she found hope with a new scoliosis treatment. Tune in May 11th to hear a first-hand account of her journey to a straighter spine. I want to thank everyone for tuning in to this latest podcast of the Scoliosis Dialogues, which is a podcast of the Scoliosis Research Society. I hope you guys continue to tune in. We have a lot of great interviews coming down the line on all sorts of topics related to mentorship, related to the latest uh, uh, cutting edge research in scoliosis, as well as related to uh, how better to build your practice as you continue to develop your careers in spine deformity. Uh, so please stay tuned for our next episodes. The Scoliosis Research Society is a nonprofit professional organization made up of physicians and allied health personnel. Their primary focus is on providing continuing medical education for healthcare professionals and on funding and supporting research in spinal deformities. Please visit srs.org for further information. Thank you.